0: Welcome to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner.
1: Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight may describe himself as a rather conventional guy but his life and career path perhaps tell another story altogether. As a successful criminal lawyer and partner in a law firm, it seemed his career was on course before he decided to chuck it all in and try his hand at becoming a writer. Now, with his fifth novel under his belt, it would seem leaving the law was a pretty good bet. And tonight, along with telling us his story, he's going to transport us back in time to some of the moments in Australian history that he so dramatically evokes in his writing. It is my Pleasure to welcome the author of novels such as The Rules of Backyard Cricket on the Java Ridge and his latest The Burning Island to Great Australian Lives, Jock Sarong. Welcome.
0: G'day, Laura. Thanks. How are you? Really well, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's lovely to be talking to you.
1: Are you in Port Fairy right now?
0: I am. I'm sitting here. It's raining outside. I'm in a little converted shed in my backyard.
1: Oh, how beautiful.
0: Yeah. That'd yeah, sound, great atmospherics for writers. Actually
1: sounds beautiful. So our, our, our listeners understand why we're in different places. We are recording uh, remotely, which is what we've been doing a bit of through COVID for these shows, and I, think it's, I actually think it's a great uh, evolution of the way we do some of these shows. I can speak to you while you're sitting in your backyard studio in Port Ferry, which is, is just beautiful. Um, now, I want you to take me back to that moment like I alluded to in the intro, there, where you actually told your friends and family that you were going to give up your job as a lawyer and start writing books. How did you do? How did you do that?
0: <laughs> it sounds so simple when you put it like that. <laughs> it was um, it was probably a long time coming, and um, my wife Lily and I had talked to each other about it a lot over the years because really I had wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. And being a lawyer was something that I did in response to having got the year 12 marks. I, and until I got that letter, I had never given being a lawyer five minutes thought. Mm. Um, so I worked as a lawyer for quite a long time and, and put the writing side of my life aside. <laughs> and every now and then it would bubble up and we'd talk about it. And um, ultimately it got the better of me. I'd been writing articles in the surfing media for a few years on the side while I was a lawyer. And that was going well and I was really enjoying it. And I suppose that crunch point came where I was finding it too hard in the end to juggle the two lives and I had to choose between them. I think the lawyers I was working with at the time had happily assumed that law would win out. Um, <laughs> and in fact, it went the other way.
1: Yeah. Well, I can imagine, uh, you know, being a partner in a law firm and there's always demand uh, for lawyers, uh, especially criminal lawyers. Um it's such a sure, um, you know, secure uh, career, I guess, in a way, isn't it? You, you're taking a risk by, by changing it up.
0: Yeah, and at the time that this was happening, we've got four kids and they were all under 10. i read and, that. That's... You know, there's a mortgage and, and there's okay? other worries to think about. <laughs> and um, I, I remember the question I was asking myself at the time was, is the responsible thing to do with your kids to stay in the, in the steady chair Um, Or is the responsible thing to do, if you're going to encourage your kids to follow their dreams, Mm. then to actually live that life? Mm. And to this day, I don't think there's a right or wrong response to that. But I think that's the question to ask. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Good on you for, for following your dream. I mean, I think there's a lot of readers out there that would be very grateful to you for for giving up uh, your life as a criminal lawyer to write these incredible books that you have. Uh, was it your wife that encouraged you the most to, to follow that dream?
0: Um, it's funny. I, I remember we had a succession of conversations over a couple of years and um, she would say to me, well, there's this to think about and there's that to think about. Why don't you stick it out for another six months? And I think one day I must have come home and launched into the same tirade and she eyeballed me and said, okay, do it, go. Yeah, And, um, you know, you can imagine the horror. Oh, <laughs> now I've actually got I'd to do it. <laughs> I've been taken seriously. Um, so, yeah, Lilza, you know, she's a very steady hand and, and she sees the bigger picture better than I do. I yeah. was probably thinking about my own needs a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did you, was it, when you did start writing, did you get a lot of rejections before success? And did that, did that make you question your your choice?
0: I was in a strange in-between position where I was working on one novel for a number of years, and I had a vague idea there was a novel in there somewhere, but I had made it into a big mess. And <laughs> I was working with – yeah, so, yeah, there were 30 or 40 rejections from both publishing houses and from agents. Wow. And then I got a yes, but the yes was very contingent. The yes was you'd need to completely rewrite this thing. Um, And I went through that process over a couple of years, rewriting the one novel, um, until it got to a point where they offered me a contract, um, and that was the point when I jumped. I think, you know, looking back at it, I had very little idea of how much more of a battle was yet to come, even though I'd got a contract for that first book. Um, That's by no means the kind of economic transformation you need to throw away a career. (laughs) but Somehow I convinced myself that it was.
1: Oh, well, you've made the right choice, obviously. And and it was the Port Ferry Writers Group in the early days that, that you actually saw on a supermarket notice board that, that sucked you in.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I had been writing nonfiction, as I was saying, for surfing magazines and sort of flirting with the idea of whether I could write some fiction. And there's a lot of self-consciousness that comes with that. When I was yeah. a kid, I used to write fiction and then crumple it up and throw it out or hide it. Um, and I was still very embarrassed about the notion of making up stories as a grown adult with a mortgage and four children. Totally understand Um, that. And yeah, going to the writing group really helped because uh, you sit around eating Tim Tams and drinking Shiraz, I don't know, and um, (laughs) people read out the little bits of things that they've written and and then everybody critiques it. And That really helps with building confidence and understanding what you're doing badly and what you're doing well. Mm. So I think that was the the necessary transition from not being a fiction writer to being one.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And I I can imagine the first uh, meeting would have been quite daunting (laughs) to, to read out what you'd written.
0: Yes. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> I would have been beetroot red
1: at the time. <laughs> um, the Burning Island. Let's talk about the setting for that book.
0: So The Burning Island is the second of three books. The one before it was preservation and the one after it, um, I'm still writing. And the three of them are set in a group of islands in Bass Strait called the Furneaux Islands. Mm. And if you imagine... Um, imagine Tassie is a triangle and it's kind of in inverted commas and the inverted comma on the left is King Island and the inverted comma on the right is the Furneaux Group, which is a whole lot of little islands yep. and one very big one called Flinders. They're really physically beautiful. They're made of this sort of silvery granite, these big domes of rock. A little bit like if people have been to Wilson's Promontory. It's it's similar favorite beaches, similar rocks. Yep. Um, just gorgeous and yet... It has this very, very dark history of um, colonialism, and mm. what interested me immediately as a writer was the combination of extraordinary natural beauty and this this sort of shadow over everything. It really gives you some light and dark to work with.
1: Mm. I, um, I often wonder with, with, with books like this about, you know, the history of colonisation and, and um, our, our First Nations people, how you go about carrying the responsibility of telling those stories, which can be contentious, but also um, it's so important to get it right uh, in, a, in a setting where there may not be really good uh, historical records. How do you juggle all that?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, I I grapple with this a lot, and I think the answer is that the importance of having these discussions is bigger than the danger of getting it wrong. So um, provided that you go in with as much research as you can possibly do, and provided that you consult with um, Aboriginal people who are the relevant people to the area then um, you, you're doing your best to take part in a conversation which is better had than not had. Yeah. The, the, the really distinctive thing about this Bass Strait history is that it's not discussed, it's not taught in schools, and it's very important to understanding the mistakes that we're still making. Mm. You know, with, with um, for instance, the Northern Territory intervention, with debts in custody... Um, with mental health, with lots of areas of First Nations life. We're repeating the mistakes we were making in the 1800s, for crying out loud. Mm. And so I'd rather wade in and get it wrong and get in trouble than not have that conversation as a writer.
1: Yeah, it's a really good, really good uh, and interesting point. It's probably, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's... um Very good point. And and you've put real historical figures in in your fiction in the last two novels. Um, That's another level, um, isn't it, of um, responsibility?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. The thing I discovered when I started writing historical fiction, which is only at my third novel, is that, in fact, there's a whole range of ways to do it. And you need to, when you figure out what story you want to tell, you need to think about what approach you're going to take And in my case, it was, as you say, to keep as many of the dates and events and real people in place as I could, and then to write into the gaps between them, where the documents don't tell you what's going on. So, um, that means that there's imaginative room, but there's also, the image I have in my head is, if you think of poles with fairy lights suspended between them, that Um, I'm leaving all of the poles exactly as they are, and I'm trying to drape the fairy lights. And Mm. that both gives you a kind of hard intellectual rigour with the records, with the history, and it also gives you room to let the wheels spin and and be imaginative and and try to... You try to generate empathy in the reader. You want the reader to feel the emotional landscape of the stuff that is otherwise just facts and figures.
1: Mm. Beautiful explanation. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives and Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au and more with lawyer turned writer jocks are in just a moment. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is author Jock Sarong, author of five books, including Quota, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, Preservation, and his latest, The Burning Island. Now, just on that, Jock, we were talking uh, in the first segment about uh, writing about historical. Figures, and there is uh, one in particular, Taranora, um, born near Emu Bay, who's in the Burning Island, and she is a fascinating character. With um, as you've as you've 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 well described, she's someone we don't know enough about, um, but someone we really should. If I'm if, I, if I'm reading correctly from from what
0: you've written, yeah, you're right, Laura. Um, one of the fascinating things that happens when you're researching these kind of forgotten corners is that you find characters in the history who really deserve a better run than they got. And Taranora is um, a woman who was born in Tasmania, a Palawa woman who was probably very, very early on abducted by settlers and used as a domestic servant. Um, and As a child and as a young person, she would have been taught the ways of these kind of grand settler houses. And John Batman, who's mostly associated with Melbourne, was one of these settlers in Tasmania. And indeed, he had Taranora in his house at one point. And along with being taught everything else, she was taught how to use firearms so that presumably she could hunt for fresh food for the household. Um, She took that knowledge and she took a whole lot of guns and armed local Aboriginal people, local Palawa people, so that they could fight back. And it became one of the very rare instances in colonial history where First Nations people were turning English firearms on the settlers. (laughs) And um, she was on the run for most of her life. She was repeatedly recaptured, imprisoned, um, made to serve the settlers, she wound up in these islands, in the Furneaux Islands, on the run. Um, and my book, The Burning Island, is set in 1830. She was dead by the, by the next year. So right. she died at about 30 years old. Mm. And um, extraordinary resistance figure. And, and the fact that um, Palawa people were led in Tasmania by a young woman is, again, you know, it's one of those other fascinating avenues in the history that um, hasn't been discussed. So... When I found her, I imagine I could have told this story in the novel without her, but it seemed a great opportunity to bring her up into the foreground for people who hadn't heard of her.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating uh, figure. And you explore gender and sexual relations in the Burning Island uh, and preservation as well. It's an interesting time to be... uh, given all the, the Me Too stuff, it's an interesting time to be going into the treatment of women then um, for readers now, isn't it, um, particularly important?
0: It is, and it's also um, an example of the line that you walk between the political point and simply entertaining storytelling. Mm. And here, if I had created a boat journey into Bass Strait in 1830 and I had confined it to the blokes, then it would have looked heavily conventional and probably not as interesting. And having Eliza um, on the boat and making her the centre of the story um, and the various competing interests around her and the dangers that she's in, to me, it lifted the story from what it otherwise would have been. So, yes, I think there's an important element of saying there are women's stories to tell here in this part of history that that have been overlooked in the past, Um, but also what's what's the most entertaining way to tell this story? And here it was clearly to have a young woman in the, in the centre of the frame.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um sounds like a fascinating read. I've got to get stuck in. Now, I want to know about young Jock. You've written some incredible books, um, but let's, let's hear about you. Little Jock, were you always a passionate uh, surfer?
0: Um, Well, I I probably started out slowly compared to others because I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne, so surfing was always at least an hour away. Yeah, Um, It probably came off the back of skateboarding for me as a kid. Um, Another thing I wasn't especially good at. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, as years went on and and I went through university and then into share houses and then I I moved down the coast, the surfing moved very much into the the centre of my life um, so that I'm I'm doing it more now than I ever was as a young person, which I guess is the upside-down way of approaching it.
1: Oh well, it's it's a good way, and 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 surfing and the ocean. I've heard you say in interviews, even just walking along the beach, it, it they have a great influence. While it might not be in every novel you write, they have a great influence on your ideas, don't they? For what to write about.
0: Yeah, they do. And for any writer, I think you have to find a thing in your life that is a way of disengaging from all of the clutter and the noise and the social media and and the day-to-day pressures. You have to find a way to uncouple yourself from all of that stuff and get the deep contemplative thinking going. And and for me, that's being in the ocean and that's surfing. But I imagine there are other writers who have a a million different ways of doing that. But, Mm. um, it does have a very interesting tendency. It's no longer for me about performance in any sense. It's all about sitting there and taking in the atmosphere of it and letting the deep thinking kind of bubble to the surface.
1: Yeah, right. Um, Tell me, I see a sad thing happen with kids, and that is I've got a niece who loved, loved, loved reading books, and she's sort of losing interest now. She's got to the age of 11, almost 12 um, were you a kid that loved loved reading books and then lost interest over those early teenage years, or did it did it keep going for you?
0: Yeah, it kept going for me, um, almost to an unhealthy extent.
1: <laughs> That's good, though. Your parents think, would have been so happy.
0: I, I think there must have been decades where I was just a crashing bore about it. <laughs> um, but then, you know, at, at my age and. and for lots of us, um, th- there wasn't the competition for your time. Um, yes. Th- there weren't screens and people were less connected and mm. reading was a way into other worlds, where now there are heaps There's of YouTube. windows into other worlds. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. And did you um, did you know then that you wanted to write as that young, young jock on a surfboard slash skateboard?
0: Uh, I did. It was hmm, – it was a dream that I had, but I had a very, very conscious sense that it was impossible. Um, a, that only a handful of people ever got to do it for a living and B, that there was no money in it. And the people that I read, I admired so much that I assumed that they operated on a completely different, yes. you know, intellectual. This is
1: exactly way. how I feel. Exactly. I'd love to yes. write a book, but, so yeah, I, no money, no way I'll ever get to the way anyone else is, like jocks are wrong, so why try? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think I just blew it all out of proportion. You yeah. know, it's, it's a career like any other and you can work towards it and there's a path towards entering it and it can be done. Yeah. But somehow I got it in my head that it was the impossible dream. So I used to, as I was saying before, I used to write things, scrunch them up and throw them away. At one stage I bought a typewriter um, so that, because I was so embarrassed by the sight of my own handwriting that I discovered that typing it felt slightly less weird. Did you slam so I,
1: at the with one finger like a like a true typewriterist?
0: <laughs> yep, yep, hunt and peck, and yep. um, it was it was completely manual, so it was really really loud wow, and clattering. At the yeah. end of the line, you got to smack the carriage, and it would go sliding back, <laughs> make a big thing. Yep, it was great fun, satisfying. Um, I probably wrote at about one tenth of the pace because of <laughs> all of that physical interaction.
1: Theatrics. <laughs> I want to know too, Jock, I mean, before you were this incredible author, um, as we mentioned in the intro, you were a criminal lawyer. I'm fascinated by criminal law. As a journalist, I've spent far too many uh, hours of my life sitting in the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Is there a case that you remember um, that really, I wouldn't say highlight, but is a uh, memorable moment of your your um, career as a criminal lawyer that stuck with you? Um,
0: I, I guess there are a lot of them. The one that was probably the biggest undertaking for me was being part of the prosecution team in what became known as the police murders, which was the Silken Miller oh. case. Um, so I, I came into that really through luck, I suppose. I, I, I was adjacent to the people who were running the prosecution and they needed a junior prosecutor in it. So I was the third wheel. Um, I was very junior, but on this very, very significant stage in a case that um, carried a lot of emotion and a lot of financial investment and a lot of media. And um, it was an extraordinary acceleration of things from what I was otherwise doing, which was magistrates court, everyday street yeah. matters.
1: Yeah,
0: Um and I remember thinking that this this was how excellently and thoroughly you could do things if there was almost no budgetary limit and no limit to the willpower, because people were very very yeah. committed to that case.
1: Yes, yeah, and I think that that thought that that um, about if there's no budgetary limit and, and if you have all the passion uh, can be can be transferred to any. Um, career path can't it if (laughs) there if there's no limits on budgets and those sorts of things and that's absolutely right would you ever go back to being a lawyer
0: no um (laughs) i (laughs) i think uh where it is in my life is a place that i'm content with it which is that i saw and did interesting things and i tried hard and uh i feel that i learned a lot um but I also felt that a lifetime of it would be um, a very gruelling thing. And 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 it, there are people who have the constitution to do that for a lifetime, and I suspect I'm not one of them.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I can understand that. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives and more with Jock Sarong in just a moment.
0: You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
1: Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers funeral Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner and our guest tonight is author Jock Sarong, whose fifth and latest novel, The Burning Island, which interrogates the history of colonisation and takes us into the wilds of 19th century Tasmania and beyond. Now, I want to know, Jock, awards and accolades. You don't seem like the kind of guy who would be wound up in, in getting them. Some writers are. Do they matter to you, that sort of a claim? I
0: think they matter when they happen. But as you say, it, you wouldn't want to be aiming at them. Um, I think people who make art make art because the art matters to them. And when, you, um, when someone says you're up for a gong then that's terrific and you have a big night out and (laughs) you put it on the shelf and it gets dusty and you concentrate on what you're doing yeah um yeah yeah, I'm glad that there is an ecosystem of grants and awards and other things around writers to keep us all encouraged um and sometimes the money can be really helpful but if it was the only reason you did what you do then you'd wind up somehow
1: yeah and that's uh, it'd be wrong wouldn't it if you're only going for the 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 um the trophies and the gold medals you won a ned kelly award for for best first crime novel in 2015 which i'm sure you're aware um that uh must have been pretty big moment for you um to get your career going
0: um it was it was a hell of a surprise i remember thinking and um I took my mum to the awards ceremony and they tip you off beforehand that you've won um, so that you've got something coherent to say when they drag you <laughs> onto the stage. Um, and I didn't tell mum that that was the case. And, and um, I think mum enjoyed that award oh, more than I did.
1: Yeah, I'll bet she did. That's beautiful. Um, and did you find that being recognised like like that helped you as a writer and, and your uh, prominence, um, you know, in the field?
0: Yeah, I think it does. Um, It's a mixed blessing because ever after you're introduced as a crime writer. Uh, And um, I I kind of hope the work has evolved in a number of directions, although I love writing crime stories. um, It does, in in this industry and lots of industries, it's helpful to people to have a handle with which to introduce you. So if they can say winner of the Ned Kelly or whatever that thing may be, Um, then that's a kind of, I guess, that's a a shelf to put you on. And, yeah, um, yeah, it's useful for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, On the Java Ridge, that is a uh, much-loved book of yours. Um, It was the first time you'd brought surfing themes into your fiction, though. Uh, It's a novel that also explores the treatment of asylum seekers and the lengths the government will go to, uh, especially when in election mode, uh, to win favour. It's an interesting topic to explore. Why go there?
0: You're right in saying that it was perhaps a couple of things colliding. And Mm. often the good ideas for novels are indeed that. Um, If you've only got a single strand of thought, it's a long, long road to get through a novel with with that one strand. But if a couple of things coalesce in some interesting way, then you've got some depth to work with. And here I had been thinking a lot about my surfing writing and trying to bring surfing into my fiction, which people have tried to do and variously succeeded and failed um there's some great fiction writing about surfing and equally there's some awful cliche and i was i guess fatally tempted to have a go at doing that um so i had started jotting down some thoughts about a kind of um, an indonesian boat trip novel at the same time um i When I was a lawyer, I had worked a fair bit with asylum seekers and I've always been involved and interested in asylum seeker causes. And um, I was getting angrier and angrier about our government's treatment of asylum seekers. And I wanted to write fiction about that. And um, the two things literally collided with the idea that if Australian surfers were on a surf trip on a boat in Indonesia, it was completely possible that they could intersect with an asylum seeker boat coming to Australia, and there's the two ideas coming directly into conflict. And so, once I kind of saw that as um, a template, I guess the the novel just flowed fairly naturally from there.
1: Mm, yeah, and um, that's a it's a great it's a beautiful way of of marrying the two ideas. Um, again, with with such a contentious and important issue as um, asylum seekers. You would again feel a real uh, weight of responsibility to tell that side of the story properly I can imagine. I mean, you're a surfer you know so much about surfing, you live on the coast but to get the asylum seeker side of it right so that it's not um, trivial or patronising to their cause or anything like that, you would have to do so much research to to tell their, their side of this, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, and often I think with fiction writing, the the amount of the research that appears on the page is a tiny tip of the iceberg, that often the great bulk of it is under the surface. Um, And here it was things like um, representing Afghan Hazaras in a way that was authentic and, and as you say, not condescending. Um, I, I didn't want to muck up what I felt was an important conversation by getting details wrong that would simply be offensive or or just clunky.
1: Mm. Do you, um, I mean, you've said you're passionate about those issues. Do you hope that, um, you know, books such as yours, this literature has the power to influence the way people think about these issues, Um, even politicians? Would you aim for that?
0: Um, I think that might be overstating the importance of of what I do or what novelists do. (laughs) You never um, know. I, I think, You know, increasingly the idea is that you're putting up questions rather than trying to lay down answers. And um, when novelists or filmmakers purport to give the answers, generally they look pompous. And the best that you can do is to try to get people thinking about their own position rather than declare a position. So if people go away from the novel and they read other things because something's been prompted then I reckon it's done its job really well. Mm. Um, But I I think it's overstating it to say that I'm going to change anybody's position by writing fiction. Yeah. And and people get really entrenched in that field too. People go away and get their own particular evidence and they wield it like a baseball bat and it's very, very hard to move people's positions.
1: Mm. Better to be a cog in the wheel.
0: Um, I think so. Yeah.
1: Now let's talk about the rules of backyard cricket, such your second novel, such a uh, um a, a loved uh novel of yours. Um and this one is about sport and I'm sure many of our listeners would be familiar uh with it. Reviewer Doreen Sheridan described it as a novel of suspense about family, sport, celebrity, rivalry, masculinity and the high price of getting everything you want. Um Interestingly, I've heard people say that they loved that book, even though they didn't really care or like cricket. <laughs> that's that's good, isn't it? That you've got those people on board.
0: <laughs> I remember when I was um, when I was doing publicity for the launch of that book that um, people would come up to me and say, "Please tell me this isn't a cricket novel," and I'd say, "No, nah, no, nah, it's not a cricket novel. It's yeah. a novel about relationships." Yeah. And then other people would come up and say, oh, I love cricket. Has this got much cricket in it? <laughs> it's got heaps of cricket in it. Um, so I was walking both sides of the line with that
1: point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why did you choose cricket as the vehicle to tell the story? I mean, how did that come about?
0: Well, the, the starting point was, you know, when you turn on the TV and there's been a sporting scandal, and I'll say it because it's it's a fact, it's always a male athlete sitting at a table with the club CEO on one side and his manager on the other I'm side. Apologizing. And he apologising, carefully. And he'll be rolling out cliches along the lines of, if I've offended anybody, I'm deeply sorry, um, or please respect my family's privacy at this difficult time. Yeah. And what I think sparked the whole thing was I was interested in what happened five minutes before that press conference yes. and what happened half an hour after that press conference. Yes how did this young person wind up in the position of having to look down a camera and say, I've been a jerk? Yep. And um, the answer to me is that talented male athletes are told at 12 or 13 or 14 years of age, you don't need to worry about the little stuff. We'll take care of that. Right. You just hit the ball or kick the ball or do whatever you've got to do and we'll pick up the pieces after you. And that lack of accountability plays into adulthood. Mm. And at some point, That guy does a knee or he simply becomes unfit or he has a run-of-bad form and suddenly he's chucked out into society with the rest of us, only lacking any ability to be accountable for his behaviour. And I wanted to explore, you know, I used cricket because I grew up with cricket, but I think the same thing could be applied to football, cycling. absolutely,
1: yeah.
0: Anything you want, yeah. Yeah. Um, So cricket is the vehicle to have that discussion. But the discussion I was interested in was – that person and how they grow up from being a teenager.
1: Yeah, well, that is uh, is so important in Australian culture. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives, and Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au and we will be back with author Jock Sarong in just a moment. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner and our guest tonight is Jock Sarong, former criminal lawyer turned writer and the author of five wonderful books, including his latest, The Burning Island, which is in store now. Now, Jock, has COVID lockdown, or did the COVID lockdown, which uh, was a while ago now, um, was it a blessing for you uh, as a writer being, being sort of well, sort of locked in that studio in Port Ferry in the backyard with the rain falling. I mean, that's sort of the quintessential writer's dream, is it not?
0: Oh, well, yeah. I, I feel in a way like the rest of the world got dragged down into the lives that we're leaving. <laughs> it's, um, you know, suddenly everyone's in their backyard studio. You
1: thrive in, in incarceration.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in one sense, life was not all that different. Yes. In the, um, I, it's a fairly solitary life at the best of times. Yes. In another sense everything changed because people were reading more um, although I think the research is still uncertain as to whether what they're reading more of. Mm. Um, people were reading more there were books uh, there were books to sell but um, the launching of a book and I launched the Burning Island deep in the middle of last winter um, became very, very different where previously you'd go out to bookshops and libraries yes. and writers festivals and you'd kind of Corky (laughs) Awares, we were all confined to Zoom and um, people had to be much more inventive about the way – there was a day, I think it was September 1 last year, when something like 600 novels were released in Australia and New Zealand because of a backlog of launch dates that publishers Mm -hmm. kept pushing them back and then they all went at once and – so, how do you make a book visible in yeah, that among environment when all you yeah, when all you've got is the screen to work with? Mm. Um, so it was a, a weird and different time, but I think a lot of really clever innovations have come out of it. Right, what did you do? Now,
1: can can dance in a Zoom uh, launch to get people to notice you? I mean, how do you get people to notice?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that, <laughs> and trying to work with social media yeah. and hoping for good reviews. Yep. Um, but I think writers' festivals have evolved a lot out of that experience and now they're partially digital and um, we've all learned a fair bit. You know, the books in some ways um, are quite an antiquated and po- uh, ponderous game yeah. and um, things have been really accelerated by that experience.
1: Can I be cheeky and ask what is next from you? Is it, <laughs> can you give us a teaser? What What's Jock going to serve us up next?
0: Uh, of course you can, and that's not remotely cheeky. Um, <laughs> I so th- there are three books about Bass Strait, and I'm I'm oh, writing. Third, I course, have in fact yes. written the third. Yes, um, and I'm just going over it and over it and over it. I'm on. Um, if I look at the screen to my left, I'm on the twelfth draft.
1: Wow. Um,
0: so that I, I imagine will be released next year. Yep. Um, and and it's the closure of a kind of historical arc of fifty years from the wreck of the Sydney Cove in 1797 to the end of what was called the Waibelina Settlement on Flinders Island in 1847. And that was where a guy called George Augustus Robinson um, dragged uh, the Tasmanian Palawa peoples and he put them in a settlement on a windy island and tried to turn them into God-fearing Christians. Mm. Um, It was a disaster and very, very instructive. Again, going back to the idea that we're repeating the same mistakes what went on at that settlement is um, a a weird echo of ways that we interact with First Nations people today. Mm. So um, the third novel concerns that little period. Um, And then after that, I think I'll try and jump genres again and and get out of historical fiction and and write something completely different.
1: Right. Um, And do you get much time on the surfboard now that you're on your 12th 12th draft of, <laughs> I'm sure, what is it, an epic novel?
0: Um, more than I rightly should. Right. I, yeah, <laughs> I've got nothing to complain about on that front. And um, given that it's the only exercise that I do, Laura, yeah. I, um, yeah, that's that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it.
1: Do you take the kids out? I'm, and poor fairy, could you have chosen somewhere a bit warmer to be surfing? Freezing. <laughs> it's beautiful, but come on, are you wearing three wetsuits?
0: Uh, yeah. It is um it is very, very cold. But <laughs> when you've got nothing to compare it to, which my kids don't, they uh, think it's lovely.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so they're all blue around the lips. <laughs> are they all surfers? Yeah, yeah, in different wow. ways. Yeah.
0: Um, we are all surfers. There's an awful lot of wetsuits draped on our front porch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Sounds like the absolute idyllic Australian upbringing. So well done to you. And thank you for being our guest. It has been an absolute pleasure and uh, very informative. So thanks again.
0: It's been great, Laura. Thanks, Heath.
1: And if you've enjoyed our chat with Jock Sarong tonight and you'd like to share it with a friend, subscribe to the Great Australian Lives podcast. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And of course, join me the same time next week when we celebrate another Great Australian Life.
0: You're listening to Great Australian Lives with, with Laura Turner, Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.